You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. Today's episode is The Test Dream, episode 11 of season 5. Wow. The beginning of the end. I've always compartmentalized the show as pre-test dream and post-test dream. And here we are. This episode is sublime, confident, meditative. Overthinking it has you running into brick walls on occasion. But to quote Tony this episode, it's just so much more interesting that way. So let's do this. This episode was written by David Chase and Matthew Weiner. Directed by Alan Coulter. Originally aired on May 16th, 2004. HBO synopsis. Though his affair with Valentina is heating up, Tony can't seem to get an old flame out of his mind. After digesting an unsavory bit of news, Tony B. takes out his agita in an all-too-familiar way. Treating himself to a night's repose in the city, Tony ends up in another somnolent, Funhouse. So, from smashing Janice's dreams of an idyllic home life last episode, here we are in the test dream. The test dream, in a nutshell, is a dream about mistakes made and what might have been, what could have been, and what Tony must do or not do about Tony B. What is a test dream? It's been said that it has to do with being unprepared for a test in school. As we'll see, Tony was unprepared in this dream. I also read the title as a play on Test Drive. Without discussing too much about future episodes, in many ways, this episode is a test drive of sorts for the ways Chase will play with form in the show to close it out. The title, in a way, always signaled to me, you ain't seen nothing yet. Before jumping into the episode, in thinking about preparing for the show, how to talk about a masterclass in surreality, I thought about other depictions of dreams, visually, cinematically, musically. First, dreams depicted in art, because that's how we do. The first known depiction of personal dreams in Western art was Albrecht Dürer's Dream Vision in 1525. Coincidentally, Albrecht is the last name of a key executive of HBO during the Sopranos' reign. Then there were the religious depictions of dreams by Raphael. For those of you listening closely, a nod to pre-Raphaelite art. The nightmare-themed paintings of Hieronymus Bosch. Not the Titus Welliver Bosch, but the same name. Did Michael Connolly know that? But all these early paintings, say pre-1800s, were nothing compared to the creative expression that came from the Surrealist movement. Surrealism, of course, was largely inspired by Freud's work. And so it's no surprise that what we see in many of those paintings translates to the way dreams are depicted and presented in The Sopranos. Henry Fuseli's The Nightmare from 1781 ushered in this new era of expression that was led by Dali, who we've spoken about at length in the past. 
art that defied interpretation. And that's so fitting, right? Because in so many ways and at so many times, The Sopranos defies interpretation and, quite frankly, laughs at us for trying. I said once that in doing this project, I felt at many times like Alex Honnold, free climbing El Capitan, with the analogy being that The Sopranos was El Cap. That's where the analogy ends, though. There was a top for Alex, a finish line. And Working through this and especially figuring out how to construct this episode in particular, where I'm, let's say, more than three quarters up El Cap, I realize, paradoxically, there is no end. There is no top. The show, for me, is like those bullets in Tony's hands at the end of the episode. I can grasp for them, try to apply them, make sense of them, attempt preparation, but in the end, just as it was the first time through, I'm left with a metallic residue over my mind of confusion and a feeling of falling short. But what, am I going to cry now? Next, songs about dreams. And as I was jotting these down, ones with lyrics that reminded me of Tony. Fleetwood Mac's dreams. The line Aerosmith's dream on. Everybody's got the dues in life to pay. The Cranberries' dreams. Ella Fitzgerald, Dream a Little Dream of Me. Birds singing in the sycamore tree. Imagine Tony's backyard there. Meek Mills, Dreams and Nightmares, where he said, When there's beef, I turn my enemies into memories. ASAP Ferg's, Dreams, Fairy Tales, Fantasies, where he explains, You fucking with the winner, the heavy spender. You know it's me. I'm trying to bring out the freaking you like Jodeci. Lyrics on that track are colorful. But the groove and hook, you'll get sucked into a repeat rabbit hole if you let it sink its teeth into you. Yeah, I, I call you got that because you's a wildcat. You leave me with a big neck scratch when I... Then there's Empire of the Suns walking on a dream, which pronounces the word awe the same way Bobby does. You know, the hard R at the end. M83's album, Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, and the lyric from the song Midnight City, waiting in a car, waiting for a ride in the dark. The night city grows. Look at the horizon glow. And that saxophone at the end destroys me every time. Crowded houses. Don't dream it's over. There's a battle ahead. Many battles 
Tom Petty's Running Down a Dream. The Eurythmics, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, and the line. And finally, Apocalypse Dreams by Tame Impala. Probably the most affecting line for me and uncanny connectivity to the show. My world is turning pages, I almost want to sing it as I say it, while I am just sitting here. Am I getting closer? Will I ever get there? Does it even matter? Do I really need it? And then later, didn't even know you? Now I'm going to miss you. Dreams depicted in cinema could be an entirely separate podcast series, but a couple were top of mind. Vanilla Sky, where David Ames is driving in a classic Ferrari on the empty streets of New York. I read that New York City has never allowed anything like that ever since. Inception, what stuck with me about that film, besides the sheer ingenuity of it all, was the idea that you could hijack your dream and take control of it, that you could direct it and its outcome rather than submit to its will. And full transparency, Pee-wee's big adventure also sits top of mind. That shit scared the crap out of me as a kid. Stays with you. Okay, final category, dreams depicted in TV. Mr. Robot's 90s sitcom dream. The show played with the form and used a dream sequence as an escape from a brutal beatdown the protagonist, Elliot, was receiving. In Game of Thrones, at the end of season two, we got a Danny dream in the form of foreshadowing the future. Valar Morghulis. One of those expressions where if you see it, you say it, and the hair on your neck stands up. Bojack Horseman used a dream sequence to depict a bad trip. Also of note, because David Chase was part of one of the episodes, and the show has its own take on The Sopranos finale. A pretty good one, too. Then there was Six Feet Under, which used dream sequences with regularity as a way for characters to work through stuff. Next, Breaking Bad had one dream sequence featuring Jesse doing something where he really applied himself. He's imagining better days while enduring possibly the worst of circumstances. I remember it being effective and well-timed. Then there's Mad Men. I'll just call it the Burt Cooper dream. Remember the song, The Best Things in Life Are Free? The Leftovers, a show I wrestled with, and I'm not even sure I finished had a dream sequence that lasted an entire episode and built off the end of a prior episode. The last TV dream that came to mind was a subtle one in Twin Peaks, a show that, if nothing else, gave permission to bend forms and try new things. Finally, The Sopranos, 
The dream sequences here are largely to put us inside Tony's head. We're with him on the outside most of the time, seeing things as he sees them. Then we get to parse what he's thinking or working through in therapy. And the dreams, that's the trifecta. We actually get to climb into his mind, buckle in, and go along for the ride. Best part about this ride, you don't have to wait in any lines. You just press play. And on that note, let's go. We open to moaning. Valentina, it's been a while. And a couple other girlfriends since. Separation Tony is hard to keep up with. In any event, note that the episode starts with Tony in bed with Valentina and ends with him in bed alone on the phone with Carmela. Physical distancing and whatnot. Production note, those curtains, the folds, the opulence, the sensuality. More than anything else, though, what I see is great soundproof treatment, especially in this new normal where every project or session can't be optimized for studio environments. Cinematography note, the camera pulls focus before Tony enters the frame from below. I don't know why, but there was something inventive about that to me. Especially this episode where we're about to dive into a 20-plus minute dream. Blur and obfuscation are elements I paid attention to. For example, later we'll see Polly in a crowd of people, but he's blurred. And for good measure, I found myself saying blur one too many times, so I can't possibly go on without mentioning the band of the same name. And how well Song 2 has aged over the years. There's a line in that song as well that's reminiscent of Tony. I got my head checked. Okay. Valentina, satisfied, offers to cook Tony something up. Egg beaters and Tabasco. So, because they were egg beaters, does that make them a degree less ominous than standard fare eggs? Also, did you know egg beaters have been around since 1972? Seeing that confirmed one thing, the chicken lobby are a bunch of gangsters. The innovation of egg beaters is that they contain real egg whites, but no egg yolks. Instead of those yellow balls, they're filled with thickening agents. Tabasco, since Valentina was so specific, so too shall I, has been around since 1868. I read somewhere once that the dried pepper seeds that eventually get crushed to create the sauce that we know, at least half of that supply is locked in a bank vault in case of a global disaster. Timely, I'd imagine. And since I've committed sufficiently, like Darrell Rivas on Rivas Island, Tabasco's meanings are varied. One account says it comes from a Mayan phrase and means our lord of eight tigers, to which I immediately thought of Dali's painting, dream caused by the flight of a bee around a pomegranate a second before awakening. Another source defines it as a place where the soil is humid, which made me think of Kinderhook and the soil where TB and Chris dug up the Johnson brothers and email Kolar. For all you horticulturalists out there, Humid soil is great for growing trees. And of course, as The Sopranos tells us, digging graves. Temporary ones, at least. She's yelling from the kitchen, and Tony says he hates this shouting from the room shit. 
part of that makes you wonder if it's because of surveillance. And part of that also reminds me how much of a peeve that has become as the headcount of my house has increased over the past few years. Observation. He's generally irritable after sex. No rest for the weary over here. She gave him a brochure for sandals, the jewel of Antigua, an all-inclusive something or other. He's not hyped about it. Says he's got AJ on weekends, which kind of connotes he's got no interest in even trying to make it happen. Contrast this with him being ready to take Gloria anywhere she wanted to go in the world. She was different to him. Tony would do anything for her. Go anywhere for her. Listen to anything with her. Maybe even Jodeci. Sandals, in any case, it's a five-star hotel. Rates right now in the middle of a global pandemic run around $1,300 a night. One thing is for sure here. He's wrapped his mind around expending those resources and doing his part to support the hospitality industry. The place, however, as we'll see, and the company he's with will be a little askew from this original grand vision of Valentina's. Jewel of Antigua, not so much as the Jewel of Central Park. For couples with kids thinking about getting away for a while after three months of lockdown and homeschooling, Sandals Resorts is a Jamaican company that specializes in all-inclusives for couples. At last count, there are 16 resorts. But what am I, a fucking travel agent now? Note, as Valentina says, three sun-filled days, the burner comes on. Also note the orange in the bowl next to her. Oranges and eggs in the number three. You can't see, but I just did the Brando Godfather hand gesture. She tries to explain that the water is so warm, clothes are optional. He counterpunches with being concerned about his skin in the sun. This is so clever. Him being concerned about his skin, given what's about to happen. You could also interpret it as being more deeply nuanced that he's concerned about himself, protecting his own skin, looking out for numero uno. Valentina wants attention. That's it. That's all she ever wanted from the very beginning of her introduction on the show. And she finally gets it by being engulfed in flames. Gives a whole new meaning to Alicia Keys' Girl on Fire. Visceral scene. Welcome to The Sopranos. In case you weren't fully locked and loaded for this episode. Cut to kid smoke alarms. One of the oldest and best in the business. If that wasn't a product placement deal, then it is now. Back on Tony, blanket over Valentina, tattoo on his finger that we've seen a few times in the past. Maybe we'll watch him get it in many saints. Cut from the smoke alarm to Tony B at his game, blowing smoke. There he is. Saw an interview recently with Winter, Weiner, and Chase, and they talked about how irritating it was overusing that line, almost as if its potency was diluted, like, forget about it. Fan verdict? There he is. Oh! And any other fucking Sopranos-ism or variant can never possibly get overused, overworked, or overapplied. They're like that violin in Bittersweet Symphony. We hear it over and 
over incessantly. But instead of diluting the art, it colorizes it. It defines it. It ingratiates us to it. Tony B, looking dapper as ever. We know from past episodes he likes to spend his newfound wealth. Remember the sack of cash he found? Those shoes he got? Got me thinking about the GOAT app, but not for Jordan 1's, Yeezy's, or Travis Scott collabs, but for the Tony B's of the world. Gator skin loafers sprinkled in with some snake skins and a couple few Bruno Mogli limited editions for good measure over here. Angelo Gareppe rolls in to see him, start the clock on Angelo Gareppe's screen time. They embrace like old friends who've been through hell together, prison in this case. Angelo's with his son, Charlie, kind of looks like a civilian at first glance, but unclear. Certainly registers a civilian name. As he and Tony B walk to speak privately, we get a gander at the patrons. If you got my Gator reference with the shoes, hopefully gander just clicked. It's all about the gander. The patrons don't look like the executive game crowd from prior seasons. There's coughing and off-color attire. I thought T said he was going to send in some high rollers through there. Some of these guys look like patrons at the Bing. The Monday night patrons. In the back room, TB pours him a drink. Charlie, we learn, is in architectural salvage. Now, Matthew Weiner, who co-wrote this episode, his wife is an architect. Can't help but connect the dots on that. Also, not for nothing, but architectural salvage could be the new school waste management. Certainly if the dealer intercepts the demo company that's tearing down the house. Could be a tidy little business. The key piece of intrigue with architectural salvage is the treasure hunt component of it. And that's a great parallel to The Sopranos. Every episode in its own way is a treasure hunt. Like Sanford and Son? Fred Sanford was a junk dealer in Watts. That show aired for six seasons from 72 to 77. And it was a lead-in to The Rockford Files, the show Chase worked on early in his career. Fred Sanford was played by Red Fox. He passed in 1991. TB drinks from a coffee mug while his guests drink from tumblers. Regularness of life. Who can't relate to that at some point or other? Angelo hands him an envelope. A little more for the Joey Peeps thing, but not all of it. What is this? Layaway? Is this Ben and Casey Affleck in Goodwill Hunting with the sandwiches now? To quote the scene, is Angelo antagonizing him? I hope TV's getting points on this. I'm sorry, but Rusty, I think he bangs his wife in installments. What a fucking perfect, devastating sentence. Put Kobe and Shaq together in a clutch situation and you get Kobe's lob to Shaq in Game 7 of the 2000 Western Conference Finals against the Portland Trailblazers who had the game in series locked up 13. Shaq's face and reaction after that lob was Chase and Winers when they surgically prepared that line and timely drop of it in an episode where the stakes were fucking raised, to say the least. The Sopranos putting their mark on dreams depictions in television. Actually, fuck that. Their dream contribution to cinema. Note TB's deer in the headlights look when Angelo hands him the envelope in front of Charlie suggesting he's an outsider. 
not a friend of ours, so to speak. TB calls Angelo his old man, rabbi, and priest rolled into one. And he throws in fireplug for good measure. It means short, stocky, and athletic. That stopped me in my tracks 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, and today. Who's my Angelo Garepe? Who's all four of those things rolled into one? Maybe some of that's the quarantine talking, but it's a worthy question all of us should ask at some point when we're looking in the mirror. Angelo isn't done. He hands him another present. It's a plaque with an engraving. Because I'm the boss. That's why. It looks used, though. Oh, wait. Charlie must have plucked it from his architectural salvage operation. It all adds up. Tony B puts it in a position of prominence as Angelo looks on. The camera lingers on him for a beat, just enough to make you uncomfortable or wonder if something is going to happen to Tony B or to him. That fucking linger, man. I'm sure I've babbled about it ad nauseum on prior pods, but that linger is magnetic and just transfixing. I know. Take a fucking breath, Vic. Discontinue the lithium or whatever the fuck. We haven't even gotten to the dream yet. I'm just saying. For Gata, it's all about the gander. For me, it's all about the linger. He removes a calendar to replace it with the plaque. Note the fridge to the left is called a summit. Tony B has peaked, like Alex Honnold, at least for the moment. And removing the calendar, was symbolic, especially in this episode. Time and space are about to blur as we enter into the test dream. Cut from the sign, because I'm a boss, that's why, to Tony in medical protective gear. We see Valentina severely burned. Gotta say, he showed up. This mattered. Part of it Shirley had to do with wanting to keep things friendly so there was no potential or at least a lower probability of another arena phone event or worse. But as we've seen with so many of his other extramarital relationships, there's a patriarchal caretaking component to it. V's on something. She thinks he's a doctor there to operate on her. He tells her that her hair will grow back and that the burns are only second degree. No skin grafts or hyperbolic chamber. Malaprop for hyperbaric chamber and its use case of oxygen therapy for wound healing. Tony says he's going to take care of all her bills and a wig. There's a morbid hilarity to the fact that that was a top action item for the use of his proceeds. Alas, he says he's got to go. He's done with her right there. She just doesn't know it yet. Cut to Angelo walking out of Costco with a Peg Perego John Deere kids tractor. Peg Perego is an Italian company that makes kid products, strollers, high chairs, that kind of shit. And John Deere licensed ride-on vehicles. To my amazement, they haven't cornered the market on Tony Soprano Suburbans, Escalades, or Stugats. If ever there was a perfect, logical, and glove-fitting brand extension, surely it's that. But the ultimate, and most definitely what you could log my deposit down for on, sight unseen, for my little Benny, is a Peg Perego Crown Vic with laser printers in the back. 
that John Deere doesn't fit. The Costco guy's pissed because his shift is almost up and he wants to get the hell out of there. Hope he grabs a slice on the way out. Don't care what anybody says. Costco slices are underrated. Angelo waves him off. He's not going that far. What a line, given what's just about to happen. Move over, Rocky. Chase and Weiner are doing one-handed push-ups alongside you at this point. Peanut song is playing in the car while he's driving. Charlie Brown over here. The connectivity is perfection. Connectivity to Angelo's son, Charlie. But more importantly, that's Frankie Valli singing. He, of course, played Rusty Milio on the show, and Rusty is pretty much the whole reason Angelo had a target on his back. And here he is, serenading him to his demise. Somebody honks, and at this point, that soprano trick. Extra screen time for a character that normally doesn't get it. Something's about to happen to Angelo. It's the Leotardo brothers, Billy and Philly. They pull in front of Angelo, and he bumps into them. Billy goes Godfather 1 on him and strangulates him with the wire from behind like Carlo Rizzi. Phil casually pops the trunk of his car to ready the cavity for Angelo. The fucking premeditation of these guys. Truman Capote couldn't write it so cold-blooded. Angelo dances like the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz into the trunk. Billy punches him in the face several times for good measure, wraps his head in plastic, and Phil pulls out his gun. Haunting line. Billy, but don't say you know me! They slam the trunk, and without skipping a beat, Phil lectures Billy about the car and the work he just had done. Now, everything's askew. Note this scene was an homage of sorts to Frank Vincent's character Billy Bats in Goodfellas. little role reversal, though. In an episode about dreams and the subconscious, how fitting that Godfather and Goodfellas rear their head at every turn of this episode. There's still more to come, as we'll see. Cut from one dead body to the ghost of another, Livia and her house. The sound effects are doubly impactful here. Quiet, tranquil, early morning neighborhood street after the bloodshed we just saw. Tony's pacing inside looking for the paper. Mirsa, must be the new housekeeper, says it's in the kitchen. At the risk of sounding like a privileged Indian guy whose Indian parents raised me in an environment of privilege and afforded me the luxury of a housekeeper, This always reminds me of a letter I wrote to this girl once. Hand wrote. No copies. No reproductions. I poured my heart and soul into that shit. Soundtracked to Mariah Carey's music box. Pearl Jam's black. And I fucking admit it. Jodeci. Pacing back and forth. Agonizing over commas and adjectives. Trying to make it lyrical and memorable. And ultimately win her over and make her mine. Estella saw it as scribbled gibberish and threw it out with that day's trash. I came home to a perfectly clean desk and was immediately suspect. Took me days to put two and two together, and nothing was ever the same again. But, like Lil Wayne said in Solange's song, Mad, let it go, let it go, let it go. Note the time, 10-10. That was around the same time as Valentina's accident in her kitchen, just 12 hours later. Mirsa explains she threw the paper away, and she's about as apologetic as she's going to get. She plies him with some enchiladas she baked, and he stomps off after watching her take out the trash. For the record, I never got enchiladas or an explanation. And that girl went to prom with this guy Ryan instead. 
I looked him up for purposes of this exercise. He's got a construction company in Northern California. And they got married and have a couple of kids. Next, we see Tony walking up to Tony B's with the enchiladas. Tony came to collect direct from Tony B. Apparently, he was supposed to kick up to Carlo, who kicks up to Tony, chain of command. Tony says it has to do with Carmela. Carry over from last episode, all bullshit. Tony B asks conversationally, he's buying a wave runner. The jet skis made by Yamaha. Tony says he's moving to the plaza. He's finally had enough of his mother's house. Honestly, I always wondered why it took him so long. But not necessarily the plaza. Something local. A condo? You know, something right down the line. Jerry Rafferty over here. T projects the rage he has for Mirsa to Tony B. Fucking Guatemalan. She forgets her English whenever it suits her purposes. And then she shows up whenever she feels like with the fucking enchiladas. For some reason, can't help but always think about Ali Boy Barese right there. And the number one excuse for the ages. Died on the vine. Tony B says the same thing Janice does. Get a new one. Tony recoils because he's heard that before. This is the new one. Then Tony sits down in a chair fit for a king. A because I'm the boss, that's why kind of chair. He's upholstering, though. But some king, some king of his own little town, sat on that chair and played Tom Petty at some point, just for a while. Tony tells TB about Valentina, the burning hair smell in particular. Why does it smell like that? Well, hair, it turns out, is composed 90% of a protein called keratin. Inside that protein is carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and sulfur. A lot of keratin is held together by what are called the disulfide links. When sufficiently heated, those disulfide links break, and sulfur is released to chemically combine with oxygen and hydrogen to create these volatile sulfur compounds that smell like shit. Okay, enough with the Vidal Sassoon Academy over here. Tony says, the last thing Carmine said before he had his stroke, he smelled burning hair. Carmine's on his mind. File that away for later. Tony B's anxious about something. Like I get whenever someone shows up unannounced and you think the place looks like crap. Yet, Tony's too in his own head to give a shit. But then again, so's Tony B. And there you have it. Something deeper's going on with Tony B. It's not readily apparent to Tony yet, or us for that matter, but he's way off. He's covering something under the guise of cleaning his mother's living room. A little bit of levity. Tony B has experience with burn victims on account that Aryan guys were lighting themselves on fire in the can. Great dose of comedy amidst the chaos as always. Tony's clearly fishing. Wants to know about Valentina's prognosis. More fundamentally, what the prospects are for their relationship going forward. Superficially speaking. TB's pacing and it drives Tony crazy. Hard to get in a word edgewise over here. Says he was going to end it right there that night she burned herself. But now he's concerned about how that's going to look. How that's going to play out in the court of public opinion. Or at least in the court of his own mind. He says she's been a pain in the ass. Throws her under the bus. It's not exactly true. Up to this point, she's been low maintenance, relatively speaking. What the fuck does this shit always happen to me? TV's face at Tony after he says that. Are you fucking kidding me, guy? And there it is again. 
that linger. Tony's fidgeting with a coin and a she loves me, she loves me not kind of way, tells Tony B that he's been thinking about Charmaine Bucco. While that one away for later too. Says she's a better cook than Artie and she's a licensed notary public. Speaking of those, thanks to a global pandemic, you can finally do that shit remotely now. Tony says he needs a woman like her. The fact that the notary public component puts it over the top for him is the best. Tony is crying on Tony B's shoulder about something Tony B could give two shits about. Very relatable. And I found myself in this situation more than a few times. And I apologize here and now to the people I poured my stupid shit out on. Important note. Remember this scene and connect back to it the next time they're in front of each other physically. Cut to New York City, outside the Plaza Hotel. A horse dominates the frame. Pyomai-ish. File that away for later. Note the low angles, like last episode, the empty swimming pool, the exterior shots of Satrial's optical connectivity. Tony pulls up. Valet asks if he's there for a wedding. Tacitly ironic. He's not there for the union of two people. And though he doesn't realize it yet, he's there for resolution to his internal conflict about Tony B. At least in part, certainly. Valet asks if it's short-term or long-term. Nice nod to long-term parking, perhaps. The title, the next episode. Long-term or short-term? Okay, you just park it. Tony gets to say whatever the fuck he wants to say to whomever the fuck he wants to say it to whenever the fuck he wants to. It's very aspirational. Valet's name is Baltazar. That always reminds me of the great French spot in Soho. Still there, I think. Also, coincidentally, it's the formal name of an artist known as Balthus, whose works were described as being erotically charged dreams. Tony walks into the sounds of Claire de Lune on a harp. Another piece of music that, quite frankly, I don't think can be overused. And that it was used in this episode of The Sopranos in particular is apropos. Just works best here. Kind of makes me wonder if it was on a list somewhere at some point. T comes within an inch of photobombing the wedding party. And I love Autopsy's comparison of this sequence to The Shining. And I gotta say, I see it especially in the visual grandeur and staging of it. While checking in, Melfi walks in with her friend. Was she a member of the wedding party, I wondered? Tony, a.k.a. Mr. Petraglia, sees her and panics for a moment. And we hear that he signed on for a deluxe suite with a park view. That starts around 3000 a night. Tony B. summoned Ralph Cifaretto's earning prowess. He enters the room, that wistful walk up to the curtain, and the dramatic pull away to reveal Central Park, looking north along the Upper East Side. Every time you see it, what a magnificent city. The bellhop's name is Jesus, and says if you need him to press nine. Is that in the catechism? The first thing Tony does is unpack pictures of AJ and Meadow. He places them in a place of prominence, like Tony B. did with the sign. And again, we get a linger, a frame of their frames. Don't overlook this. He traveled with framed pictures of his kids. Was he planning an extended stay? Is that normal, everyday Tony stuff? Was he being solidly sentimental? 
Note, his kids weren't a factor in the dream. I mean, we see Meadow, but it's benign. Do the frames serve to anchor them in reality, I wondered? To firmly root them in the present or the constant, the two things in his life that aren't in flux or uncertain. Cut to the Plaza Deluxe Suite with a park view, shower head. Unspectacular shower head given the view. Seems disproportionate. Larry David level observation, I know. But steamy. And the steam always kind of made me wonder if the dream began right then and there. I get that it's a reach. I'm just putting it out there. Tony's chilling on the bed in his bathrobe and he's prank calling Charmaine. Hotline bling over here. Next, we see Tony sitting on the couch. So far, it's dead silent. Subtle hum of the city below, but nothing else. Again, kind of dreamlike. Next, he has a meal by himself in the room, savoring each bite, like Jay-Z and Girls, Girls, Girls. An appetite for destruction, but he scrapes the plate. Next, he's sitting on the edge of the bed, watching the Hotel Info TV channel. These long, spacey beats. Something's gonna happen, right? He flips to a Ladies of Jade Escorts commercial. Tony calls the number. His why-the-fuck-not face is like Mike Tyson getting a call from Dana White asking if he would fight again for $20 million. Later, he pushes his food cart out, a little out of the way of his door, to make it look like it might not be his. Sees a pair of shoes and a New York Times outside the door of another. Jacks the New York Times, leaves the shoes. Take the cannolis, leave the gun. The pep in his step to get back in the room. Until that moment, he'd been laboring around the whole day. But all of a sudden, he's Fabrizio Mori, the Olympic hurdler over here. He gets back to bed and sees a red button flashing on his phone. A warning sign. The signs are everywhere. What's this, L.A. story with Steve Martin now? Silvio left him a message. Was that an ill-advised call? Could it have been made more discreetly, given the contents of the call? Called to say Angelo got it. Probably Phil. Tony calls Tony B. Does he know right then and there that that's why Tony B was off earlier? I'm not so sure. I think Tony's trying to prevent any kind of retaliation and prevent a cascade of events he would be able to keep from spiraling out of control. Tony B sees the call while driving, but puffs smoke and doesn't answer. He seems pissed. Was it about earlier that day with Tony? Or did he find out about Angelo already? Also, how would he have found out before Tony, I wonder? Who was the loose lip that sunk that ship? Tony calls the casino room TV's running and Dot answers. Dot is usually short for Dorothy. I learned that thanks to a kid at my kid's preschool. But also an unintended full-court pass for an easy layup back to my Wizard of Oz Angelo Gareppi reference a few minutes ago. TB isn't there either. Tony fidgets some more. Calls Aunt Cantina. Next call is to Polly. His call girl knocks on the door. He's overwhelmed. This whole junket to the plaza was supposed to be relaxing. Professional, she says she'll fix herself a drink while she waits for Tony to get off the phone. Tony suspects his cousin knew something because he was acting squirrely in the morning. And he's worried. But Polly says he's not that stupid. Shows you at a minimum how much stock Polly puts in an IQ test. 
I can hear him saying, get the fuck out of here with his hand up when presented with the score report. T gets off the phone and his date's checking out the mini bar. And right there, he's calculating what's the better view. That Central Park expanse or this? She turns around and that's it. Lights out. Next, we see Tony in bed. By all indications, this is where the dream begins. But now we're playing with forms and exploring dreams through a soprano's prism and aesthetic. And nothing is ever as it seems. Everything is a little muddled and ambiguous. I mean, couldn't him pulling up to the plaza at the beginning be the start of the dream? Could be. We hear a woman's voice, Tiffany. We assume it's his date. It's the next morning, and Tony rolls over to see Carmine laying next to him. The boss of New Jersey is in bed with the boss of one of the New York families. And that bed, metaphorically, as we know, is the Esplanade, among other things. Certain projects on Freeland Heisen Avenue, for starters. Tony freaks. Carmine says he misses Violet, his wife. While cleaning his glasses and the sheets, he says he's all alone on the other side. That's ominous, because Tony's all alone on this side right now. And it doesn't seem like he has much to look forward to. Carmine looks over Tony's shoulder at the phone, which immediately rings. Carmine says to answer the fucking thing. We've heard him say this before. Says, tell the man upstairs you ain't seen me. Reminds me of Christopher to his friend JT, who owed him a debt. What are you, ducking me now? But beneath the surface, so many questions. How did he get down? How did he escape? Can you do that on occasion? What are the repercussions of such conduct? Carmine got to go upstairs instead of downstairs? If so, shouldn't Tony be more happy, more relieved? Especially after what Carmela said to him in the pilot? Why didn't Tony ask him about Johnny Boy? Check in. Tony answers the phone, and it's David Chase, the man upstairs. He says our friend has got to go. Don't fuck it up. It's important. What friend? Carmine? Tony B? We'll come to ascertain that it's Tony B, but in that exact moment, was he talking about Carmine? Tony B? Phil? Johnny Sack? All of the above? Next, we're in Melfi's office. Fitting. He's recounting everything we just saw, and the voice relaying back to him sounds like Melfi, but it's not. It's Gloria. Ah, we're still in the dream, in case that wasn't clear. Okay, as a viewer right now, I feel a little like Bastion and the never-ending story over here. T recognizes the phase shift from solid Melfi to gaseous, evasive, out-of-his-grasp Gloria. And his subconscious wants to know what she saw in him. Inception over here. The object is to learn what you saw in me, not what I saw in you. What's this, a Beatles song now? You say yes, I say no. You say stop, and I say go. He calls her Alice. He's Jackie Gleason to her Alice in The Honeymooners. And this further extends to Tony B., who from the get-go we've seen and known to spectacularly mimic Jackie Gleason. And a large part of this dream, of course, is working out what to do about Tony B. It's been weighing on his mind since the day he got out of prison. And as we're seeing early in the dream, 
Tony B is leaking out of all the crevices like a hot spring. But I'm no geologist and this isn't Yellowstone fucking park. So back to the matter at hand. His hand gesture suggests a reference of some kind, but it's a dream. And dreams, at a minimum, are a clusterfuck of things. There's no logic, no answer. But that doesn't make it any less fascinating to contemplate. Especially if one is operating under the umbrella, as I am, of David Chase's words. It's all there. He did say in an interview once that trying things kept it interesting for him. And that's what he wanted to do with Test Dream. Pow! Right in a kissa? Her accent's thicker. More New York. A little more Charmaine, if I may. They've never been happier together, these two. The moon, Alice! <laughs> I remember when you hit me, it was like pow to the moon. Don't get me steamed, Alice. And then you choked the shit out of me. Yeah, but that's, that's after you were trying to put a fork in my eye. <laughs> oh, that was your mother. <laughs> <laughs> right there, the dream and reality merge together to bend our minds. Tony spits out his water and they both laugh hysterically. And then Gloria, as she did while living, turns dark. They're talking about kids. The taking a shit childbirth line comes out again. Same office, just a different person. Gloria says she died too young to have children. And Tony takes it in for a second, but then brings up the fact that Tony B doesn't mean Gleason. This mission is about Tony B, his subconscious asserts, like Saito, the Ken Watanabe character in Inception. Tries to kiss her. She says, are you ready for what you have to do? What does he have to do? What does he have to make right in this dream? Why is this episode being thrust on us right now? Is it his realization about Tony B? Is it his realization about Carmella? Is it his realization about Phil, Johnny Sack, all of it? Tony B evidently is the first line item. But part of me feels like Test Dream is a realization that there are multiple line items Tony's going to have to address going forward. He brushes her off like he's brushed off everybody else so far, says no sweat, he did his homework. Two references to a pastime from all our youths, homework. How's that going to play out? Nice connectivity to how it eventually plays out with Coach Molinaro coming up. She points to a TV with Tony in the car. We've seen this frame before. He was dreaming then too. Remember when he was in the car with Gloria, Carmela, and Ralphie? We're in a dream within a dream. I'm convinced this is the moment Inception crystallized for Christopher Nolan. Now, nobody's in the car, and Johnny Boy's driving. Lights a sig. Tony's looking on from the back, proud, dressed in his best, too. Now, Big Pussy's riding shotgun, and Mikey Palmici's right next to Tony. Tony quickly tells him he knows he's dreaming, and Palmici's replaced by Artie. They're driving down a country road, that same country road to nowhere. Tony asks, where are we going? Johnny Boy looks at him through the rearview mirror, kind of disappointed. Long beat. Now Ralph's in the passenger seat, and he says they're driving him to the job. What job? Next, we see the Soprano residence. Residence looks like footage, though, like aged film stock, like something out of a Mad Men carousel, actually. Next, Tony's inside the house. From the cream suit to a fila tracksuit. Carmela's in the kitchen dressed for court. 
or an executive real estate conference, maybe, since we're dreaming and all. They're going to be late for Finn's parents, she explains. He tells her that he had the weirdest fucking dream, but he's still in it. This will be a great counterpoint to the final scene of the episode, so hold on to it. They lock in on the film Chinatown with Jack Nicholson on the kitchen TV. Tony looks like us every time The Sopranos is on. Tony. Juan, give me a minute. Can't express how many long nights I've had after uttering that same expression while The Sopranos, or Rocky for that matter, was on. But it's so simple, and so is his explanation. It's so much more interesting than life. And then it's Christmas time on the screen. The film is Scrooge, this after Carm saying that what's in the TV is his life. And then perhaps for me, the weirdest part of the dream is when they watch each other put coats on and then do it themselves. As the Tony and Carm inside the box within a box head out, something's going on in his mouth. It's a tooth that comes out. What does that mean? Part of me always wondered if it portended Tony's death and whether or not teeth falling out would be a byproduct. Gotta say something about Sony Trinitron since we're on it for so long. Trinitron was the flagship brand name for Sony's higher-end TVs. The basic innovation was brightness, with incremental technological gains over time from the 70s through most of the 90s. Once the patent expired, Sony pivoted to a new brand, the Wega, which some of us might remember, which was top of the line and would definitely meet Polly's standard until plasmas and LCDs took over and flat screens more or less became ubiquitous and commodified. Okay, the Tony two TVs deep is nervous, but heads out. And we're on Charmaine, quite literally. Dream Charmaine is leveled up a notch. Let's call her MTV Music Video Charmaine. Tony sees High Noon on the TV at the bar, starring of all people, Gary Cooper. I think that's the first time we actually see him on the show. We've talked about him, heard about him, ruminated on his myth. But this is the first time we see him. And what better place than a dream? The tagline of that film is a story of a man who was too proud to run. Following the logic that this dream's central focus is Tony B, this is ironic. Also, later this episode, albeit wild dreaming, Tony himself runs. Look, at this point, it's obvious. The TV sets and the stuff on them are clearly a theme here. We are watching a TV show. And David Chase forever changing the way TV is viewed and made and labored over was clearly top of mind. You think MJ was thinking about anything else but basketball while accruing six championships? No. No part-time lovers when it comes to greatness, guys. Invoking Stevie Wonder? That was for Phil Leotardo. Maybe something for his scrapbook. They arrive at the table. Meadow, Finn, and his parents greet them. Vin McKazian and Annette Benning. First immediate thought, Finn and Kevin McAllister are brothers? Annette Benning, of course, is the Tony Emmy an Oscar-nominated actor, married to Warren Beatty. Mrs. DiTrolio asks Tony how long he can stay. And it's layered. Why can't he finish dinner? What does he have to take care of that's more important than this? And maybe it was a little bit existential. Like, 
Can you outlive this thing of yours? How long can you stay on earth before getting rubbed out? He takes out a tooth and shows them all, like a trophy, including the future dentist. And then another tooth falls on his plate. And that's followed by Mrs. Dutrolio saying, we know all about you, and I think it's great. Is she talking about his waste management particulars? Or is she talking about him not being prepared? Then poor Finn gets the brunt of this dinner. None of the parents at the table thought Finn would amount to much. Carm says, the die is cast. Julius Caesar over here. And right then, Finn becomes AJ. And then there's another reference to the Tooth Fairy. Dreams double down on references. Like when Finn told Tony he wants to be a dentist, the first thing that probably went through his mind was the Tooth Fairy. If someone mentions they're born in December, you think of Christmas, June, NBA Finals, that kind of thing. Then Mrs. DiCiolio turns to Meadow, asks her if she plays an instrument. Med says she was a singer. Relevance or just mere conversation? Maybe a nod to the title of the show being misconstrued for something musical at the outset. Then, I mean, Mr. DiCiolio summons his Navy Glee Club days and starts singing. Lionel Richie, or the Commodores more precisely. Three times a lady. There's that number three. While singing, Tony taps Mrs. DiCiolio and says, you're Annette Benning." For as far as we've come with Tony, what is it now? Five seasons, 11 episodes in, he's become a much more prolific thinker and dreamer. Breaking down the fourth wall here signaled that to me. Vin keeps singing. He taps her again and she snaps. Can't interrupt a good thing. Then Tony sees Artie's head through a glass on the door to the kitchen. He's pointing somewhere. Tony tells Annette that something bad is going to happen. After singing, Vin and Tony go to the bathroom. And we get another Godfather reference in the form of Sonny Corleone. I don't want my husband coming out of there with just his cock in his hand. Mine either. Believe me. Cut to Artie, again, still pointing and nodding. Note his finger is suggestively a phallic symbol. Inside the bathroom, Tony sees an attendant in there, looking sullen. He's watching a Sony Trinitron, too. We see feet walking ferociously on the screen, followed by Tony walking into a stall reaches up behind the reservoir to feel around for a gun. Dream. Subconscious. How many of us walk into a bathroom stall anywhere we go, especially a restaurant, and think the same thing? I personally don't touch any of the equipment inside a stall. I'm kind of like Polly in that regard, but I definitely 100% think it. So, Tony and Vin are standing next to each other, pissing like racehorses. Tony says, you don't do this no more, huh? Is that a reference to him being dead? Then Vin piles on. Are you going to be able to come through on the thing? And once again, Tony says he did his homework. Something about his youth is clearly brewing in this dream, and it feels like we're headed in that direction. Tony holds up the Volacci Papers. That, of course, is a book by journalist Peter Moss, based on the testimony of Joe Volacci, the mobster who turned state's evidence. The first or one of the first. But wait, what was Tony's homework? Learning how to flip? Or how not to flip and how to hold it all together? And is Tony B a problem that could prevent him from holding it all together? So many paths to the basket here, guys. 
You've got your seven seconds or less Mike D'Antoni-style offense. You've got your Stockton-Malone high pick-and-roll scheme. And then you've got your Phil Jackson triangle package. And that brings me to a little thing I wrote. For the record, I even produced the beat myself. They start to debate whether this is real life or not. And then, gunshots. On glass, this guy knew TJ. What up, Don? We don't talk anymore. He compared The Sopranos doing it. to Black Mass. Tony's. In a test dream. More interesting than a podcast. More ironic than a viral meme. More appetizing than Turkey Hill ice cream. Just saw Globe Motors Gloria. MBZ with Cream Seats Euphoria. And then... Vin Detrolio. Wait, does that mean Kevin McAllister and Finn are in some kind of brotherhood imbroglio? T alone with no gun and only a ghost of Vin McKazian for protection? All due respect, he about to run. 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 Away from Johnny Sack's pale complexion when he saw agents about to tackle Genie's midsection. Tony's running to the soundtrack of Van. Not slim, slow, sliding, not Isaiah riding, but a man born into something that on most days he ain't vibing. AB's at the table, and Tony's teeth are unstable. This is prestige TV. Benning's cool, I see it, but I run with Edie. Okay, wrapping up, because spitting bars is hard as fuck. Next book on my list are those papers by Valachi. But let's be real, what's it going to tell me? More about Profaci, the origin story of Stracci, the connectivity between Salazzo and Ray Curdo? Fuck Ray Curdo. The executive game ending on a pair of aces? Thank you, but keep it. The only account of Cosa Nostra I need is David Chase's. And that, my friends, is what three months of quarantine does to a person. Cut to Tony B shooting someone in cold blood in front of a crowd of people. Shooting into a car. It's Phil Leotardo. He's getting capped. At a minimum. What's the takeaway here? Phil's days are numbered. Tony says he knew it was going to happen. But he's very calm and unreactive now. The opposite of the anger management episode last time. The shot of Tony walking through the crowd is interesting visually. Remember when you could stand in crowds and didn't have to wear masks or think about physical distancing? A bystander asks, why didn't you stop him? Was it more than a bystander? Was he a metaphor embodying a combination of personas? Us, the viewers, his crew, his mother, his family, Tony B's estranged daughter. Bobby Jr. is in the crowd. Does Tony see him? Subconsciously, I wondered. As a rising star. They're not anywhere near Vesuvio's, by the way. More like a scene out of The Wire at this point. Phil gets out of the car and falls to his knees. His movements and gestures are exaggerated and almost Shakespearean. We see a group of people again. In the far back, in the left, the guy we see on the stairs at Livia's farewell gathering at Tony's house That guy, sans glasses, is in the back of the frame, or it would seem so. We get the same view of Tony B looking down on Phil the way Phil looked down at Angelo while pointing a gun at him. Symmetry. TB finishes the job on Phil using his finger. Shell casings fall all the same. What was that? The finger-pointing gun. 
Maybe that Phil wasn't the real target, but that real shots would be fired at someone else. Begs the question, and maybe it's worth considering now, why didn't TB go after Phil? Why did he settle for his brother? He's a smart guy. He could gauge all the permutations, or at least enough of them. Wouldn't taking out Phil weaken Johnny Sack greatly? Give Tony leverage with him and potentially lead to a hybrid version of the UN-style agreement they talked about a few episodes back? Remember? Under the stars? Tony B looks to Tony judgmentally and says, why don't you tell him what you did 20 years ago? Again, Tony's guilt about Tony B resides firmly in his subconscious too. And notice Gloria's not behind Tony than she is during the intercuts between T and TB. Phil wakes up, reaches out for help. In surrealistic Dali fashion, Phil wakes up, reaches out for help. Autopsy correctly points out that these sequences defy explanation, since it's a dream after all, but that it's a greater space for Chase to revolt against TV conventions, to break the fourth wall a little, and to make us uncomfortable. If it's true that you're only as good as your last envelope, he's telling us, in a visually striking and creative way, the contract is a two-way street. Gloria walks over to him with a microphone. What do I got to do to count before I can get up? Again, more breaking of the fourth wall. Tony says he's really dead. Kids and grandkids are mentioned. And then, the wind. Phil's going about and pitying for himself. But all the while, a great wind carries him across the sky. All of us. A discerning eye will see we're at the intersection of Dwight and Beard Streets in Brooklyn. Sadly, that tree is gone, and there's an Ikea there now. A black man asks Tony if he was supposed to take care of Tony B. Is that Tony outsourcing the Tony B hit in his dream? Where's Christopher? Then, two people look out a window overhead. More allusion, perhaps, to JFK on that fateful Dallas morning. Next, Annette Benning raises her hand. We're in one of Tony's old classrooms now. The school of hard knocks. Gloria calls on her. She's the teacher. The teacher of life over here. Annette Benning says there's something Bugsy about him. Of course, that's a nod to her husband, Warren Beatty, and his film, Bugsy where he portrayed Bugsy Siegel, the notorious Luciano associate, and she portrayed Virginia Hill, his girlfriend. Okay, we're back on the crowd for a moment, and we see Polly, distant and blurry. That's always been meaningful and impactful for me. I've never quite been able to put my finger on Polly, and I've always been a little suspect of him. And Tony's subconscious, rubbing him out a little in the frame, said something to me. Then Melvoin emerges from the crowd and heads toward Tony, almost serpentine-like. Maybe that's the subconscious ascribing serpentine-like mannerisms to a lawyer. This makes Tony panic and start running. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Cut to Tony running in the dark. A sniper overhead with a black eye takes a shot at him. Lee Harvey Oswald? If so, does Oswald miss? Isn't he a sure shot? He scored a 212 in the Marines, 
above the threshold to be classified as a sharpshooter. But what am I, a ballistics expert now? Does this look like Kevin Costner and JFK doing a Tony Soprano Zapruder film forensic analysis over here? Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. A crowd of people are running after him. Carmelo's in front, leading the pack with a flashlight. She's got to get that allowance. Then we cut to a more pastoral-looking crowd. Lanterns, top hats, torches, and bloodhounds. Bram Stoker's Dracula over here. Tony's past, present, and future are intersecting and coming for him. He runs faster, sees a light at the end of the tunnel in the form of a G-Wagon. Stands for Galande Wagon, Mercedes-Benz's highest-end SUV. As he gets closer, a window rolls down. Was that David Chase inside? He did call Tony earlier in the dream. Was he there to escort him to finish the thing? To see that he didn't fuck it up? Then Artie comes out of nowhere and tells him to follow him. Artie's sort of been a Google Maps for this whole dream, showing up at every important juncture to remind Tony where to take a turn. Tony chooses Artie over the G-Wagon and we fade to seeing his eyes in the rearview mirror. Opening credits over here. And also a reminder of that line that he told the guys during the Mazarone situation. His whole life's in the fucking rear view. And a quick word on that beautiful percussive music called Kulun Mankwalesh by Mahmoud Ahmed, a renowned Ethiopian singer who, in reading about him, I learned is one of the few singers known to produce what is called Eskusta, or ecstasy, when singing. I listened to a bunch of his music on rotation while preparing for this, and it's quite incredible. At times, I felt that Eskusta myself. So, Artie's driving, but he's exhausted. And I wondered if this has anything to do with what he's driving Tony to. Also, Richie and Gigi are in the back of this car. And we get a hard cut to Artie watching Tony have sex with Charmaine. There's horses trotting outside, and they're being handled by Mix. Of course, that's slang for Irish guys. Note that Charmaine is sucking Tony's thumb. More adolescent imagery, however distorted here. And then Artie says she likes it when you rub her muzzle. And we cut to Tony rubbing and mounting pie. Now, the connectivity between Charmaine and a racehorse is wild by itself. But more than anything, I think it's showing us how our mind can completely change slides. To pull from Mad Men's carousel analogy again. How we can go in complete non-sequiturs depending on the stimulation. Here for Tony, ostensibly the word muzzle triggered his old racehorse. And certainly also this notion or myth that Charmaine performed like a racehorse in bed compared to other women in Tony's life. Those notary publics, man. So, Tony's in the foyer of his house on Pi now. And he trots up to Carm. He tells her he wants to come home. More future manifesting through dreams. Carm says he can't have the horse. Which, of course, is a metaphor for all of the extramarital women in his life. He says it's non-negotiable, among other things. Note the frame of Pi's eye locked condescendingly on Carm after she says that. 
Tony receives her terms and says he'll think about it. He's not going to let that horse go twice, is he? As he leaves, Carm's a little concerned. You didn't take care of that? But Everybody's in on that thing. Everybody, that is, except us. For once, we're completely in the dark. Clearly, Tony's stalling in his dream. More foreshadowing. The stalling. It's on his mind. He's thinking about it 24-7, literally, while he's awake and while he's dreaming. They blend together, like, I don't know, Dirk and Nash on the court together circa early 2000s or something. But he's making progress. He shows Carm a gun behind his jacket, a real one. Something's got to be done. Something bad, he says. Every time I see this, I also think, all that majesty, all that signaling, Tony on the horse, the peace, Carm couldn't care less. Dream world and real world are one and the same for her, it seems. At least with respect to Tony. So Tony backs out and leaves, and we cut to him walking down some corridor. He's coming toward us. The horse trot sounds blend into the sounds of a stroll. Great sound design. The corridor turns into a high school hallway with lockers on either side. We've seen this before, too. Him walking into a high school hallway and looking both ways before walking. Remember with David Scatino during the college information night. Note the sound of those fluorescent bulbs overhead, linked with the sounds of his feet. This is turned into a horror movie, minus the score. He walks by a trophy case, puts a silencer on his gun, and walks through the depths of his old high school, which has got a leak or two. Reminds me of that Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney movie on HBO that just came out about the high school embezzlement scandal on Long Island during peak Sopranos. We see a leaky showerhead. Why that memory in particular, I wondered. Did something bad happen in the showers once? And then we see Coach Molinaro in a red jacket in the distance with his back turned. Looks like Tony's there to kill him. Coach yells out as the gun is pointed at him. I know you're there, Soprano. We learn that Coach isn't a fan of Artie Bucco either. But really? It's because of him that Tony's like this? You would think it'd be the other way around. Artie pushed T into this life? Coach calls him a pissmire, which is an archaic, once erudite word for ant. The key takeaway from this interaction, and for so much of what we know about Tony Soprano to this point, going all the way back to the junior jokes about him being a varsity athlete, Coach says he knew Tony would take the easy way out. Perhaps the deepest line of the whole dream besides, are you going to take care of it? Tony feels the need to rattle off his bona fides. He's a leader. Got a house worth over a million. A family. But Coach cuts him off. Feel like he's done that before. You and I know your little secret. Wait a second. Do we know their little secret too? Apparently there was a time when Tony thought about coaching. But he says he was shining him on. Because that's what he does to people. That little nugget is a massive payoff. Tony openly admits that he's a professional deceiver. We knew it. But we needed to hear it. Miserable fat prick from New Jersey wasn't enough. 
Coach continues that he could have been great, but he took the easy road. And Tony tries to clip him right then and there. But his gun falls apart. All three phases of matter come full circle. The solid of Melfi to the gas of Gloria to the liquid of his firearm. I know. Chem lab over here. You're not prepared! (laughs) You'll never shut me up! Always one to reach. Part of that statement, I believe, applies to us. In many respects, we're not prepared for the caliber and the calculating and the depth of this show. Even after now, infinite re-examinations. Tony wakes, and that's our test dream. So well executed, that dream, looking back on it extra closely. We were in it with him the whole time. We're exhausted by it, confused, unfamiliar with our own fucking surroundings. Ever since the girl walked in, we got sucked into something and we can't remember what the fuck we were doing before it. The execution of escapism within escapism transcends a basketball analogy. But I'm going to take a crack anyway. Dirk, in the 2011 finals, game two, the Mavs were tied 93-93 with LeBron's heat. 3.6 seconds to go. Dirk, top of the key pretty much, backs down and in one elegant move, reverse spins for a layup to clinch the game. You never saw it coming. You never expected it. You never believed it was possible. But it happened. Like the test dream happened. And like that Dirk move, after it did, you never forgot it. Tony wakes up alone. Doesn't look like anyone ever slept next to him, actually. Or was Tiffany that professional? Leon over here. Or did the girl even come? Was that part of the dream too? Tony heads straight for the bathroom mirror, looks at himself. Now think about this. The day he leaves the confines of his mother's old house, he has one of the most epic dreams for the ages. But we never see her. Tony's phone rings. Chris comes in, panting a little, but eager. Gets right to it. Tony B. took out Billy Leotardo. Phil got winged, we learn. He's in the hospital. Again, all the more. Why didn't TB finish them both off right there? How does letting Phil live right there, especially after getting scathed, help the situation? Chris is descriptive. Almost like he's trying to rile up Tony. But there's still a dreamlike calm to T. Always wondered, though, was Chris trying to get an early bird jump on Tony B? This just after their special encounter at Uncle Pat's? What sick fuck. And finally, Tony puts it all together. Tony B. knew he was going to do it when Tony was at his house. I don't know what to say. Guess TB's fucked, poor guy. Tell us what you really think, Chris. Tony blunts him, as usual. Poor guy? We're all fucked. Chris says he's there for Tony. Whatever. After all, this is his moment. Carpe DM, Chris. 
And for good measure, while he's at it, Chris asks for the Toblerone and leaves. Addiction fix, maybe? And then Tony looks out over Central Park again. We see him walking up to the window from the outside as opposed to from the inside this time. Symmetry. Plus, it's dark outside now. It's almost 5.30 a.m. Tony calls Carm. Says he has to cancel the fishing trip. She's got to break the news to AJ. Does he care? They lay there for a beat listening to each other's phone breaths. Then he tells her he had one of his coach Molinaro dreams. This is old news for her. She's heard umpteen of these. Her body language is all you need to see to convey this. That's the greatness of Falco right there. Carm says, I wonder where he is now, coach. Tony turns it back on him and says that now that it's all said and done, he is actually sort of a coach now. What he does. How he conducts himself. Keeps reciting aspects of the dream. Wants to make sure Artie's okay. He was the only alive guy in a car full of dead guys. There's a game show waiting to happen. She tells him about the dry veal at Artie's and her eyes almost begin to water, almost as if she's outside of herself hearing herself talk about things that don't matter, things that are bullshit, to her husband who's laying in his suite by himself at the plaza and asking about Esther House, the dog next door, barking. The regularness of fucking life. Serve that dog some veal a la strychnine. That's rodent poison, and in a large enough dose could kill a dog. This is whatever, but coming from Tony, off color to invoke Carmine one more time because of his affinity for pets. Remember how off the reservation he got over Cosette? Over Black, he asks one more time. Is it light there where you are yet? He asks again. The entire episode coalesces in that second ask. The religiosity of the question, is it light where you are yet? They're both in different places, physically, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, professionally. But he's trying to ask her in the lovingest way he knows how, in the only way he knows how, to stay with him. And the dog barking, that's the regularness of life inserting itself in one of the most beautiful moments between Tony and Carmela, even though they're effectively worlds apart. Dreams are said to be the key to understanding our unconscious. Taking that hypothesis at face value, with the test dream, Chase did exactly that. Whatever obfuscation and surreality might have been thrown at us, one thing is crystal clear. Tony sees himself both externally and subconsciously as someone who failed to prepare, who took the easy road, and as a result, who fundamentally grates himself and those around him, including us, over it every day. That's all I got. See you next time.